This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Very lucky to be joined on CFB this evening by Ali Begg, senior football producer, a very passionate Aberdeen fan who's worked for many incredible organisations over the years, as you'll find out in this interview. First of all, Ali, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. It's, it's a pleasure. And the, the first question, and please excuse my lack of knowledge in this department, your, your title is senior football producer. What does that involve on the day of a match? Um, it's, uh, there's so many different strings to that bow because my actual preparation for a studio show would potentially start a good two to three days beforehand. So what I would do is I would sit and read newspapers, read the internet, um, go on various football club sites and just try and find out what people are talking about. From there, I start structuring the studio program. It's basically, it's, it's called a rundown. It's the blueprint for the program. And I have to construct it from beginning to end. I just decide what we're gonna talk about. Um, I liaise closely with the guys who are gonna be the guests on the show on, the, on that particular night. And I liaise closely with the, the presenter and just um, talk about basically what we think we, we should be talking about on the night to the guests and what the fans and viewers will find interesting. So it's just about basically structuring a studio program in the build up to the live game, what you talk about at half time, and then obviously what you do at full time. So it takes two or three days to put it all together. And once it's put together, I then have a team of assistant producers who I start delegating various jobs to. So like, for example, if I want uh, some footage of a player who's maybe made, um, you know, has, has a number of assists, let's say. I just say to the guys, do me a favor, just put together a run of his assists, something like that. Um, so yeah, it takes two or three days, um, but it's great fun. Absolutely love it. And on the, on the day of the match itself, I mean, live TV is incredible, but it also, I, I imagine, brings immense pressures as well because it's live and the nature of live is anything can, can happen. What's it like when you're watching the guys in the studio from behind the camera? Well, I still get a, I get a real thrill from it. In fact, I get more of a thrill being behind the camera than what I ever used to get when I was in front of the camera because it, one of the... the, the the best thing that one of my bosses said to me, one of the greatest pieces of advice that he gave me was, be ready for a bomb to go off. And what he means in terms of that is, if something was to happen, you have to react. So if an incident happens during the game, or if something happens during a studio program, you've got to be able to react to it. And if the presenter is talking about a specific incident, or the guest is speaking about a specific incident and all of a sudden starts talking about something else, you've got to be able to be on your guard to react to whatever they're talking about 
so that what the viewers are watching at home is relevant to what the, the pundits are saying. So I get a real buzz from doing that and I still get butterflies in my stomach, you know, in the build-up to the, the program actually going on air because I go through a, a certain routine to make sure that I'm ready, everybody that I'm working with is 100% ready, everybody in the studio is fully prepared and has everything that they need as well. So it's, uh, it's great fun and it's, um, it's very exciting. It's, as I said in the, the intro to that there, the nature of producing a football programme for us as fans is the fact that we get to enjoy it and quite a lot of the time we focus on the, the on-screen talent, shall we say, the, the talent that we see, but how many people on average are there normally behind a, a live event? Because I imagine there's quite a few. It depends where you work and what international broadcaster you actually work for. So in my own experience, for example, when I was working in Southeast Asia, I would have two assistant producers on the day. I would have what you call the EVS operator. These are the guys that operate the video machines. You would have a graphics operator. You would have an engineer. You would have somebody that works the software that does all the, what we call Piero, where you see all the lines and everything going across the, the pitch, yeah? So if, if you're discussing an offside decision and if you were to put a line across the pitch, you've got guys who are specifically um, employed to do that. You've obviously then got your director, you've got sound engineers, you've got camera crew. Um, there are so many different elements to a live studio production. But wherever you go in terms of who you're working for, it will differ. Because I had more staff working for me in Southeast Asia than what I did, for example, working here in the Middle East, where the team is actually quite a small team, but do just as a, a fantastic job as anybody did in Southeast Asia. How important is it for, for, in your role with the presenters, with the pundits, the guests on the evening, to try and create as relaxed an atmosphere as possible before the show goes live? That's a good question because my roles have slightly differed over the years. So when I was a presenter, I always tried to put my guests at ease by greeting them at the door, um, at the entrance to the, the building. I would take them for a cup of tea, would sit down and would have a chat and just try and relax them as best as I could. If, for example, it was a guy who was in for the first time, I would try and make them see that there was no agenda with me, that I wasn't going to throw them any curveballs, that I would prepare the questions for them before they knew what was going to happen during the live studio. So I would actually say to them, look, I'm going to ask you this. So thankfully, most of the guys were, were able to react to that favorably when I was a presenter. And I slightly do the same producing, but I leave that mainly to the guys who are presenting because it, it, they're going to be working predominantly with them and they have to be able to react to what they're saying. So as much as I like to speak to the pundits beforehand to gauge their thoughts on any topics that we could discuss, so I might drop them an email and say, what do you think of this? I occasionally send guys my rundown so that they're fully prepared for what they're going to be talking about during the program. Some guys actually insist on getting rundowns, which um, I have absolutely no issues with. In fact, I, um, I quite encourage a lot of the pundits to ask for stuff like that, because then I know that they're fully prepared going into the program, and the presenter, more importantly, 
knows that they're fully prepared as well. So but I have to say, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate in my broadcasting career to have worked with some fantastic ex-players. And I would say that 99.99% of them have been absolutely fantastic to work with. And when it comes to presenting a show and being the anchor, one of the things that always intrigues me, you're a passionate football fan, as passionate as the potential two pundits you've got with you, you've got your own opinions as well. Obviously, your role on the night is to, to be the anchor of the show. However, how difficult can it be at times to hold back your opinion when you've, you've witnessed something on the park that you've got a strong opinion on? This goes right back to my early days when I first started working for Manchester United Television. And it was actually Sir Alex Ferguson that gave me the advice um, in the early days that I was very lucky to meet him. And he said to me, your role is to load the gun and the role of your guests is to fire it. Now he said, there's no issues with you having the odd personal opinion here and there, but it's really not your place. Unless you've played the game to the very highest standard for what you're talking about, he said to me, be very careful how you express and opinionate that personal opinion, which was fantastic advice. So I was one for not really giving a personal opinion because I never felt it was my place to do it. I was always very conscious that my guests were there to do that. That's their role. That's their job. It's what they're paid for. And these guys have played the game to the very highest standard. I have not. So I never, ever put myself in that position. I would occasionally maybe chuck in something just to try and spark a debate or try and take the conversation in a different route. But very, very rarely would I do that. And I've always been quite encouraging to presenters who are first stepping into the job who have been asked to sort of take under my wing and guide and advise. And I've always said the same to them. If you can, always try and avoid offering a personal opinion. Because what you're doing is you're setting yourself up for a fall, especially these days on social media. Thankfully, when I was presenting, you know, Twitter and Facebook were not really around. And I'm very thankful for that because um, I see now some of the grief um, that a lot of people in broadcasting get from fans and viewers of sports TV shows. And it's, it's um, you really need a thick skin these days. So, yeah, I've always been one to shy away from it, I have to be honest. You mentioned working for MUTV there, obviously Manchester United's in-house television channel. You worked for them during a spell for the club that was a successful spell. Just what was that like, being involved within Manchester United during a time of success for the club on the park? Oh, I really had to pinch myself when I got the job. I couldn't believe it when I got the job. I, I started at Manchester United TV the season after they won the treble. So it was an incredibly exciting time to join the organisation and I felt really blessed. Um, and for me, working at MUTV was my apprenticeship in sports broadcasting. I learned so much for working there for five years and it really gave me a taste of what I was hoping would be um, a career in football broadcasting. And thankfully, it, it did lead me down that path. But it was a wonderful time to work there. Um, I was very lucky to, to meet some great people, work with some great people, some real legends of the game, plus some of the players that were there at the time. And what I, where I feel really lucky is that some of these guys who were playing at the time have now become good friends because 
they've come out to Qatar and they've been guests on being sport and um, we've just become friends and I feel really really lucky to call upon these people and to um, to drop them the odd text and I really look forward to seeing them all when they come out and uh, you know we can have a really good laugh about the good old days as they call it because um, it was a long time ago now you know when I think about it um, so yeah I was very very lucky to get the job when I did and it was fantastic to to work with Sir Alex and to watch him work and to gain the advice that he gave me as well being a passionate Dons fan, I imagine you you had a few conversations with Sir Alex about Aberdeen. Oh, <laughs> um, just try and stop me. It was um, it actually became quite funny because I met him after I left to go and join Satanta, and I was doing a, an interview about Le- the late Liam Miller, the wonderful Liam Miller, um, who had just signed for Manchester United from Celtic at the time, and I went down to do a special. Um, interview with Sir Alex about that and as soon as he saw me he was like that no questions about the Dons and I'll give you whatever you want (laughs) (laughs) you know obviously he was joking Um, but he was great fun and I was very fortunate because my grandfather knew him very well and helped him um, sort of move up the football ladder when he first stepped into football management and he's always remembered that so when I met him I'd obviously met him a few times as a child but never as an adult. So when I first met him as an adult, when I first started working for MUTV, he made the connection almost immediately. Um, and from there, we just, we just hit it off. And he was fantastic during that whole time. And before the cameras rolled, I would, you know, quite obviously ask him a few questions about the Dons. And it was just fascinating to sit in his company and to hear all the stories. And he was always very, very open with me. And it was just uh, for me to be sat there, I just had to really pinch myself, to be honest. And in terms of Aberdeen, very broad question, what does Aberdeen as a football club mean to you? Oh, it's everything. It's, um, it's my life, apart from my family. It's, it's all I've ever known since I was seven years old. I grew up in the most amazing period for the club. I saw them win the Cup Winners' Cup in Gothenburg. Never missed a cup final for years and years and years. Um, it was, Pataudry was our second home. It was a family day out, be it at Petardry, down in Glasgow, Dundee, Edinburgh, wherever, wherever the games went, we went and we followed Aberdeen. It was our topic of conversation around the breakfast table in the morning before we went to school. Um, and it just became a real passion of mine. And that passion has been reignited very much so since I, um, since I moved out to Southeast Asia because all of a sudden I, was, I felt totally out of touch with it. Um, you know, not being able to physically go to games anymore. And I actually struggled with that for a wee while because I really, really missed it and I really craved it. And then, but thankfully, Red TV started, so I was able to see the games live. Um, but that certainly didn't make up for not being there. So, listen, the football club means everything to me. You mentioned growing up during the, the glory era of Gothenburg and the legends of the club that played at that era. Still, Some, some of them still work in the media now. I was lucky enough to interview Willie Miller a few months back and just to, to have an hour with him talking about that era was was incredible. What are your memories? Obviously you were much younger at the time, but what do you remember from that? Because when you think on it now, a club like Aberdeen beating Real Madrid would, sadly because of the finances in the game now, be impossible in many people's eyes. Uh, to be honest with you, I've never forgotten it. It's, it's something that's ingrained in my mind. Um, 
it was just the most amazing experience. It started really with, um, with my father because he organized a number of the flights to take the fans over to Sweden. So, because my father worked for a small charter airline company. So it really began from there. And he had a small cine camera, which he took with him and filmed all the pre-game stuff. Sadly, he didn't film anything after the game, but he, he filmed everything up to us actually leaving the hotel to go to the Uluwe Stadium, which thankfully I still have. And some broadcasters have used it when they've made documentaries about, uh, um, about Gothenburg. So it, the memories never really faded. Um, I'm just, uh, you know, when I, when, I, when I look on Twitter and when I look on Facebook and when I sometimes, not that, not that I very often dip into fans' forums, but occasionally when I dip into fans' forums and these guys are talking about that they've never seen Aberdeen win a trophy for like 25 years and they've only ever seen Aberdeen win the League Cup in 2014. I just, that really, that, that hits it home for me that there's a whole generation of Aberdeen fans that have, hardly seen, I've hardly tasted any sort of success. And for most of these guys, the 2014 League Cup success is the, the, the only trophy that they've seen Aberdeen lift. Um, and when I think back, you know, we were winning a trophy, if not two, every season for going on 10 years. So, you know, I, I know there's a, there's a lot of talk about these fans saying, oh, we're spoiled and we keep living in the past. And, you know, I know that a lot of fans from rival clubs say, oh, Aberdeen fans live in the past. Do you know what? I, I endorse us living in the past because for me, it was my favourite childhood memories. It, it just sparked so many wonderful memories of, of a time when to grow up as an Aberdeen fan was just incredible. So um, I endorse it. I imagine as a fan, you are excited at the prospect of the club moving to a new stadium and investing in, in, in infrastructure. However, how, how much of you will miss Pataudry when, when the day comes that the club do move on? Yeah, I've always endorsed the, the football club moving to Kings Wales. I, I think for the football club to move forward and to, to reach the ambition of being a top 100 UEFA club, I think it's a must I fully understand and I, I fully appreciate um, those that oppose it because it's, you know, Pataudry is Aberdeen's home. It's their, it's their birthplace. It's their spiritual home. And I, I do really understand that. But getting to know the people that work behind the scenes, where again, in the fortunate position that I am, where I've got to know these people and understand what it takes to run Pataudry on from a financial basis and how much money they have to spend on Pataudry, just um, keeping the place um, up to speed with the modern game um, is such a huge investment for the, for the company. So I think now is the time to move. I'm particularly looking forward to seeing what they will do with the stadium in terms of the fan engagement because I go to quite a lot of um, Austrian football and I see how the fan engagement really works at places like Red Bull Salzburg, um, where they really cater to the fans, not just inside the stadium, but outside the stadium as well. And I've passed these thoughts on to some of the guys at the football club, um, just for them to mull over. But I do think in the modern era, the, the football club deserves a new modern state-of-the-art stadium which will cater for the fans and give them a fantastic match day experience. The, the new training facility is something that 
the club I know are very proud of. I've, I've spoken to a few Aberdeen fans recently who are, are guys who work within the media in Scotland and and they, they wax lyrical about the new training centre and, and, and how important it is for the club as a whole. Is that something similar that, that you would echo? Oh, absolutely, 100%. What's really fascinating when I've been interviewing all the old players for my blogs, especially those that came up from England who, who joined the club from abroad and asked them for their first impressions, they all said that they couldn't believe that the football club didn't have their own training facility and that they had to jump in a minibus and go to Seaton Park or down to the army barracks or occasionally go over to the beach and train. Wherever a spot was available for the team to train is where the team ended up. And occasionally, they wouldn't find out where they, would, where they could train until the morning of training. So it wasn't just a, a headache for the club, it was a headache for the management team as well. And just talking to some of the guys that, that play now, I just occasionally pick their brains on... On, on what they think about the training facilities. And it, they all say it's, it's a wonderful um, introduction to the way that the football club can entice new players by showing them around Cormac Park. Um, it's a way to bring these guys in to say, look, we've got state-of-the-art training facilities now. Um, it's out of the way. It's, uh, it's a fantastic facility. I've personally not been there yet, and I'm really looking forward to to hopefully sooner rather than later getting over once the world sort of corrects itself again and, and having a, a proper look at it. But all the players are waxing lyrical about it. They say that the, the pitches are immaculate, their, their training facilities are immaculate, just their sort of the, the players' lounges and their hangout areas are fantastic now. Um, and just the fact that they have their own private facility, I think, has helped them uh, no end. In terms of yourself, Ali, as a footballer when you were growing up, who was your footballing hero? Willie Miller. Just God. Loved him. Just from a very young age, he instantly became my favourite player. Um, and I tried to model um, my own game on him and failed quite miserably. Um, but just a fantastic football player, a fantastic guy. Again, very, very fortunate and blessed to, to call him a pal. And can call upon him when I when I need him, um, and he's great fun. He's got a wicked sense of humour, and as you as you know, he's got some fantastic stories to tell. And uh, I really hope they they get that statue up outside Kings Wells very soon. In terms of yourself, a question that just came to mind there is linked to Pitodre, Um There's various initiatives that allow fans to play on the park. Have you ever been able to play on the pitch at Pitodre before? Um, believe it or not. I've not actually played any sort of competitive games on Petrodre. I was um, I trained with Aberdeen for about six months in the late 80s, but we never trained in the park. We always trained on the Red Ash football pitch across the road. Um, so the first time I actually had a kickabout on the pitch was when I was in the band. So we were up doing the Radio 1 roadshow. We were doing their tour all, all over Scotland, and we were the warm-up act before they went on air. So we were performing over on the Aberdeen links and a journalist from the Sunday Mail um, grabbed me after the gig and said, do you fancy going over to Petaudry and, and meeting Willie Miller? Because I know he's your hero. So obviously I didn't need a second invitation. So over we went and the other three lads were slightly baffled about this, but I couldn't wait to get in. I was more excited about doing this than I was about doing the gig. And um, went into Petaudry, went out, had a quick look around the changing rooms in Teddy Scott's room and 
bumped into a few faces that I knew and um, went out onto the pitch and had a couple of photographs taken. And then Willie Miller and Roy Aiken and Drew Jarvie came out and I had my photograph taken with the three lads. And Willie said to me, come on, let's have a kickabout. And I, I, I just couldn't believe it. There I was, um, just myself, Drew Jarvie, Roy Aiken and Willie Miller having a kickabout. And um, I became very self-conscious about trying to show them that I, could, that I could at least play the game slightly. So, you know, I became so paranoid about not being able to trap the ball and not being able to fire one in at them. Um, but thankfully, it went quite well on the day. And um, again, that was a memory that's, that's never escaped me. And in fact, only recently, for 25 years, I've been trying to find that newspaper article. And I've become really friendly with Drew Jarvie over the years. And uh, his wife follows my blog page on Facebook. And she got in touch with me and she said, I've, I've found this newspaper clipping when I was going through Drew's old photographs. And it was the, the photo shoot and the interview that I did for the Sunday Mail. And I've never seen it before. And I couldn't believe that Drew had kept it in his, um, in his, uh, his book of clippings from newspapers, you know. So I was kidding on with Drew. <laughs> And uh, he said to me, I had to keep this. It's, it's my, my most famous piece of memorabilia. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and he sent it to me, you know, uh, Jeanette sent it to me and I just, uh, I was absolutely made up so that, that I got it and I've seen it at long last, 25 years later, eh? Well, this is, that's amazing. And the thing with yourself, Arlo, that fascinates me is they say in life that people can change careers and they can do different things in life. And for me, you epitomised that. You were modelling, you were in a band, you were a presenter, <laughs> and then now you're a producer I mean, and, and an author as well. I mean, just describe the, the journey of life and being able to change careers or change paths. Because I know a lot of people get quite nervous about that, but I assume from your background that you've always relished a new challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And I find myself in that position again now because I was recently made redundant out here. So... Once again, I'm, I'm faced with um, looking into an abyss, thinking, right, what do I do next? Not getting any younger. I'm 48 in August. And then I suddenly, as much as it was a job being made redundant, actually, it made me feel quite free and quite liberated. And now I'm so looking forward to what the future is going to bring. I've decided to go freelance. I'm going to um, really concentrate on the blog, and try and improve that. I'm already talking to one or two broadcasters about potentially coming on board there. I'm talking to people in Austria about potentially working out there as well because we're going to be moving the family to Salzburg very soon, where my wife is from. So I'm incredibly excited about the future. But again, here I am facing another um, opportunity to reinvent myself. And it's, it's never phased me before apart from when I first came out of the band where I didn't really know what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go and I was going through a bit of a tough time um, sort of in the, the, the post-band months, but thankfully I was able to come through it without too much bother and reinvent myself. So it's not the first time that I've had to do it. So I've never been afraid of it. Um, and I've always been, even now I'm still, I'm still ambitious. I'm not the finished article yet. And I just think throughout my life I've always wanted to be slightly different and experience different things and um, I think I've just don't get me wrong I've been very very lucky on the way and I've had help along the way to get me to the position that I'm in now which obviously I'm extremely grateful for but I've always been really quite determined um, 
in my life to do the things that I've really wanted to do. And it really started when Aberdeen didn't sign me. You know, I was, I was training um, with the football club and that is your, you know, when you get invited to the training, that's sort of your first step towards possibly getting signed as a schoolboy form. And then obviously if you, you make it through there, you get a professional contract. So when I first got asked to come to Patoji and train, this was my boyhood dream. I was training with my boyhood club. It was all I wanted to do. I didn't want to do anything else. I had no interests. I had no clue what to do. I just wanted to play for Aberdeen. And when I got the news, uh, one cold Thursday night from George Adams, who, who told me that I wouldn't be invited back, um, it, was, it was the biggest disappointment that I've, I've faced in my sort of life, apart from obviously close family friends dying. So apart from that, you know, the bereavement of people dying, in my personal life, that was the biggest disappointment I've ever faced. And it was from there, I thought to myself, right, I can either go one or two ways. I can either allow this to eat away at me, or I can pick myself up, dust myself down, concentrate on what I want to do, and go again. And I had to do it after um, I lost my, after the band. I, I, you know, I had to do some serious soul searching after the band because again, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, plus I had the, you know, all the nonsense that came with leaving a band going on behind me. I had to deal with financial implications, which were really, really tough at the time as well. But again, it's about, right, I woke up one morning and I just thought, you know what, screw this. I'm not going to allow this to get on top of me anymore. Because um, I could feel it getting on top of me and I was worried that I was going to start slipping to places that I didn't want to go to. So I thought to myself, no, get up, get out of bed, face the day, as Gary Neville said, attack the day, um, reinvent yourself and decide what you want to do. And within, within two months, I was back earning money, um, which was the most important thing. I was working in a small gym in a hotel just outside London. Um, you know, and I got mocked a few times by people that came in and recognized me from the band, but I didn't care because I was back earning money. I was back earning a living. I got myself back into shape. I was, um, I was back in society and that was a huge lift. And from there, thankfully, I was able to sort of step into sports broadcasting from there. Um, you know, when I lost my presenting gig in Singapore, I was absolutely devastated at the time. Um, but again, in hindsight, looking back, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it gave me a career producing. So it gave me a career behind the camera, which to be honest with you, has probably given me more longevity than it has in front of the camera. So again, that was about dropping down a few steps on the ladder, dusting myself down, go right again from the bottom, work my way up, learn a new career, search my soul very carefully. But once I'd done it, you know, I was extremely fortunate that I was able to sort of step up the, the career ladder quite quickly in, in terms of producing. So that's how I basically do it. I've always said to myself, never give up, always remain positive, no matter how hard it is, um, and always look to the future because there are so many opportunities out there. And if you really, really put your mind, your soul, and everything into it, you can achieve it. Um, but it takes hard work, it takes determination, and it takes ambition. And another thing that I want to touch on is partly what we've talked about there, changing of career paths, 
changing those paths has also led you to working in different locations. You mentioned working in Southeast Asia. You mentioned working in the Middle East, living in London, working down there as well. How has it been throughout life adapting to new surroundings? Was it difficult at first and then you became a person that was quite adaptable after that? Or have you always been adaptable to, to new challenges and new locations? Yeah, I think I've been quite adaptable to it. Um, you know, when I first moved down to London, it was just like, whoa, what is going on? This is a different world. Um, that's when I really started to, to understand that sort of cutthroat environment, um, you know, when I was modeling. Um, that was when I really first started experiencing arrogance on a level that I just never, ever seen before. Um, and I'd always sworn to myself that I would never, ever get like that. Um, always to remain as humble as you possibly can. Remember your roots. Remember where you came from. Remember how you got here. Um, and I think that that working in that industry for for what, three years or, or however long it was, then stepping into the music industry where the the level of arrogance is on a completely different level. Again, I just kept thinking to myself: stay humble, be nice, um, don't lose touch of who you are. And I could see that going on around me. Um, and uh, it, I always shied away from sort of the show business side of it because it never, it never interested me. I was there to do a job. And I saw this as an opportunity to basically financially make myself and my family, more importantly, financially stable for life. That's, that was the aim. Because I'd seen my dad, not struggle, but I'd seen him having to um, start up businesses time and time again. And lost a couple of jobs and don't get me wrong he was you know we were very privileged as children and we were very very fortunate but I wanted to take all that stress away from my father um, and I just thought being in the band could be the perfect opportunity to do that sadly it never turned out that way um, but it gave me an understanding of how important it is to be a nice guy and to remain a nice guy because people remember the nice guys they don't remember those who act like dicks or are completely off the scale when it comes to their own self-importance, which I saw time and time and time again. Um, so I was very lucky that, you know, I had my family behind me. And, and you know, one, one, of the, one of the funniest stories I can tell you is we, my, my dad came down to, he was the best man at a, a, a wedding of a, of a really, really good friend of his who lived in Hertfordshire. So I said to him, look, come down. Um, come and stay at the house, and you go to the wedding. I've I've got a gig to do. We had to we had to do the um, uh, the children's royal variety performance. So we had done a gig up in Birmingham in front of a hundred thousand people in the afternoon. We flew down to London. We went straight to the Palladium Theatre to do the dress rehearsal and then the actual show itself. And got home. I was absolutely buzzing. Couldn't believe it. Dad was already in bed. I was desperate to talk to him. But I think he went to bed purposely yeah, because we could have stayed up all night. The very next morning, he got me out of bed. I had a very rare day off. He got me out of bed and he said to me, your lawn needs cutting. Get out and cut your lawn. So the night before, I performed in front of royalty. The very next day, I'm outside with a lawnmower mowing my lawn. You know, <laughs> I've never, ever forgotten that. And it was the perfect remedy to not allow me to forget who I am, you know? And I'll really, I'm forever grateful to my dad for doing that to me 
because um, I remember mowing the lawn, you know, thinking, this is brilliant. This, this, this is me back in touch with reality. This is what normal people do, you know? Um, so I was very, very fortunate that I, I would like to, to think that I've kind of kept my feet on the ground throughout my, my entire career. One of the parts of your career I want to touch on um, is Satanta because when they arrived in the UK marketplace, very successful, very quickly. Um, what was it like working there? I have to say, I had a fantastic three and a half years at Satanta. I, I, I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. I made some great friends. Um, I was working for a great football club. Met some great people there who have remained great friends um, all this time. Um, Jim Craig in particular, the Lisbon Lion, um, who's one of my closest friends who we go and see whenever we're home every single time. Um, in constant touch with Jim and Elizabeth, his wife. So I, I loved it there. Um, I was hoping to, to, to maybe move from sort of the club channel side to working on the actual Scottish Premier League as it was back then. Um, but Rob McLean was bossing it then. And, you know, Rob's such a great broadcaster. And to be honest with you, I always knew, I always knew my place anyway. Um, but as they got bigger, I, I, I did start to wonder if they were, um, if they were slightly overambitious and if they were running before they could walk. And, you know, not that it's any of my business, but I, I just thought, God, I think this is a little bit radical, isn't it? Um, and I, I just started to fear for it. Um, the product was good. You know, the, the guys that worked in the Glasgow office, oh my goodness, these guys really worked so hard round the clock to make it a success. Um, you know, so I only saw it from a, you know, from a Glasgow office point of view. Um, so the guys that worked on the club channels worked incredibly hard. And the guys that worked on the coverage of the Scottish Premier League, just constant um, work of trying to come up with new ideas and make the programmes fresh and improve the, improve the quality of broadcasting year upon year. Um, yeah, I, I have to say, I, I, I really enjoyed it while I was there. In terms of yourself being an author and also now being in charge of a very successful blog that's viewed thousands of times every time an article goes up, just just how much do you also enjoy the writing process? Because we've talked about so many different facets to your work, but the writing is something that you, you really are investing a lot more time in and your passion comes through in any piece that I've read so far. Thanks. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. You know, writing is in the blood. You know, my grandfather was a, a well-known and respected football journalist for many, many years before he passed away. My uncle, who is retired now from the profession, is also hugely respected and well-loved in the game. So the writing was in the blood. Um, for me, the writing has evolved because it was something that I never really went into. It was something that I, to be honest with you, I didn't really have a great deal of interest in. It was only really when I started writing my book that the writing side of things started to become an interest. You know, but when I, when I look at, you know, guys who are schooled journalists, my writing is nowhere near their level. Um, and that's sometimes when I have to take a back seat and, and go, right, like, just calm down, you know. Because for me, I, I write how I like to read. Um, so I try and keep it as simple as possible. Um, but I do try and convey the message. So, and I try and convey my passion, plus also the passion of the subject matter which I think is really important for the reader, that, that they're able to, to see the passion through the writing. So I, I absolutely love doing the blog and you know, I've got my wife to thank for that because it was her idea. 
Um, and it's just basically the natural follow on from writing my book because I've been asked to sort of write another book and I, I wasn't overly keen to do that. And it was Miriam that said, look, because she's, she was up to speed with people who blog and this kind of stuff. And she said to me, you should do it because you've got such a great story to tell, you know, so many great players um, and tell their story. And uh, I did. And I'm just, I'm loving it. I, it's, it's, I still have to pinch myself again about being able to speak to these guys in the, in the sort of the depth that I'm able to speak to them. Um, because these guys open themselves up to me and tell me stuff that goes on in the dressing room. And there's always that law, what happens in the dressing room stays in the dressing room, you know. But these guys open themselves up to me and it's hugely humbling. Um, and what I also, which is also very important to me is that these guys trust me. Um, you know, and it's a, a lot of the subject matters who I've been able to write about, it's come through word of mouth. So like, for example, if I, if I went to a player and said, look, I don't know you, apologies for the random email or text message or whatever, but I'm a pal of blah, blah. Um, if you're looking for a reference, please go to him. Here's a, here's a blog that I did with him. And nine times out of 10, um, they say, yes, no problems at all. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's extremely flattering that they, these guys put the trust in me that they're happy to do these, these blogs with me. So I love it. You know, I'm, I'm still trying to improve my writing and improve the way that I tell a story, but I'm hoping that'll come with time. And how can we access your blog and how can we also follow you on Twitter as well? So to get the blog, it's just www.alibeg.com. It's, it's splashed all over my Twitter page, which is Ali underscore Beg. Um, I've got an official Facebook page as well, which is just Ali Beg official. Uh, I'm on Instagram, but I'm not quite with it with the kids at the moment on Instagram. I still need to get with the kids on that. Um, I'm slowly getting there. But I, think I'm, I think I'm too old for Instagram. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's how you can access uh, all the pages and the blogs that I do. So um, yeah, it's just social media, isn't it? Before I let you go, a few quick fire questions for you, Ali. Um, sure, sure. Favourite, favourite sport outside of football? Golf. And in terms of yourself working in football and different industries over the years, who's the best golfer you've played alongside? Good question. Nigel de Jong. Oh. <laughs> and just, just how good is Nigel at golf? I did not see that coming. That's brilliant. Yeah, Nigel de Jong plays off I think he's off 10 at the moment and uh, he's, a, he's an exceptional player. Oh yeah, he's an exceptional player. With your career, you've, you've, you've went to so many places. Where would you say is the most unusual place you've been to? And I don't mean unusual in a derogatory manner. I mean unusual in the sense that a place you never thought you would get the chance to go to. In terms of my work? Work or personal life. Gosh, that's a really good question. Where's the most unusual place that I've been to? Um, I was very lucky when I lived in Singapore that I did a lot of traveling when I was in Singapore um, because it's basically a, it's a, it's a hop to the most amazing countries in the world. So I was very lucky to go to Vietnam a few times. I loved Vietnam. Um, been to Cambodia, which was amazing. Uh, 
I went to Taiwan to do the World Games. That was that was an interesting few days. Um, where else have I been? Bali's amazing. Oh my God, I had my honeymoon. We had our honeymoon on Bali. It's absolutely amazing. Um, where else have I been in Southeast Asia? Went to Goa recently. Just rained, came home. It was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't realize it was the rainy season. Oh dear, that was a disaster. Um, yeah, I've been very, very lucky. So I've done quite a lot of traveling. But the most unusual place? No. I don't, I don't really have an unusual place, I've got to be honest. But the countries in Southeast, Southeast Asia are just incredible for so many different reasons because of the culture, the colors, and um, just everything about these places. But Vietnam is right up there, top of the list. Wow, what an amazing place Vietnam is. When you were a presenter, who was the, the former professional that always kept you on your toes because you just never quite knew what they were going to say? Gordon Strachan. <laughs> I've been lucky so, enough to be in his company a few times and I agree with that. Oh dear, I never knew what to get. I still call him the gaffer. I never knew what to get from the gaffer on a Friday morning because I used to have to interview him every Friday morning. And um, I would always sit with him and I would have my questions sort of pre-prepared for him um, because that was my way of gaining his trust. Because with you know working in club TV, you've got to be slightly careful because obviously the club can... T- is in charge of the editorial content, but you also don't want to pull the wool over the eyes of the fans and the subscribers. Yeah, so you got to find that balance. So I would sit down with the gaffer on a Friday morning, and I would take him through my questions. And if there was anything that was slightly contentious, I would say to him, "Look, the reason I'm asking this is because." Yeah, and of all the times that I interviewed him, he only ever refused to answer one question in all my time. That I, that I interviewed him for going on 18 months. Um, so, but again, you just, you, you never, I, I never really knew what to get from him. Um, but he was, he was fantastic every time. Um, he's, a, he's a great man. I'm very lucky again to keep in touch with him over the years. He came to Doha a few years ago and him and his lovely wife, Leslie, came and had breakfast with Miriam and I. And um, we took a walk um, down the marina and just, uh, you know, again, I'm very lucky to, to call upon these people. So that's why I'm really blessed. You, know? you mentioned earlier on, um, when you were in the band, you get the chance to go on to the Pataudry pitch. You meet Willie Miller. That was a real humbling moment for you. Who else would you say in, in, in your working life or just personal life in general that you've been, for want of a better phrase, a wee bit starstruck meeting going, wow, this is a big moment? Um, I made a complete and utter tit of myself in front of Billy Connolly. Um, Billy is my hero, you know, outside of football, he's, he's my absolute number one hero. Grew up with his humor, um, you know, modeled my own style of humor on his, you know, I, I, which, is, which is just, you know, embarrassing that I should even be doing that, you know, considering the, the absolute legend that this man is. Um, so Paul Lambert was having his testimonial dinner in a hotel in Glasgow and Mr. Connolly was the compare for the evening. And a couple of weeks before he had spoken to Celtic TV, we had a reporter at the time called Margot McQuaid, um, who now heads up MNE television and is an, an award-winning producer. 
and she had interviewed Billy, Mr. Connolly, sorry, in Sterling. So when I saw him standing with uh, an old friend of mine um, called Russell Kyle, who was a PR manager at the time, my cameraman Ian said to me, go and ask him if he'll, if he'll come and say something about Paul, because I was going around the room asking all these ex-players if they would come and just give me a minute to give me a soundbite about what Paul Lambert means to them because for a programme that we were making the next day. So Ian kept nudging me, go and ask Billy Conley, go and ask Billy Conley. So I plucked up the courage to go over. So he's in deep conversation with Russell Kyle. And uh, I went over and I immediately put my hand out and I said, hello, Mr. Conley. I said, I'm really sorry to interrupt your conversation. And Russell jumped in and said, don't be silly, Ali. It's absolutely fine. Lovely to see you, blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, um, while I'm still holding out my hand, he didn't take my hand which made me even more nervous. And I actually didn't appreciate what a colossal man he is. He's quite a colossal man, which put my even more nervous mood worse. I was really getting quite nervous. And I said to him, Mr. Conley, I said, um, my name is Ali. I'm the presenter of Celtic TV. And he went, ah, son, why don't you say so? How you doing? And shook my hand quite firmly. And Russell said, how you doing, Ali? And he said to, to Mr. Conley, oh, Ali's a great lad, you're going, doing something with him. I said, yeah, would you mind, would you come and, um, can, I, can I take you away? And could you come and speak to me for a minute about Paul Lambert? And he says, no, son. He says, I don't want to do anything because I spoke to you, lassie, a couple of weeks ago. Now, Margot at the time was a really good friend of mine. She sat next to me in the office and she had done for two and a half years. And for some reason, I could not remember her name. And I said to Mr. Conley, yeah, she spoke to um, I. You, you spoke to our reporter, A-I, and uh, uh, I, our reporter. I'm searching for her name. And it's just a blank. And I just, I couldn't remember her name. And I'm just giving it, yeah, Mr. Conley, I, A-I, you know, the lassie, the reporter. And I can see him standing there giving it, come on, son, just spit it out or just leave me alone. I couldn't find the words. I couldn't find the words Margot McQuaig. And in the end, I gave up. <laughs> I just said, I'm so sorry for interrupting you. And he says, no problem, son, lovely to meet you. And I sort of sidestepped, did a sort of a turn and walked back to Ian with my head held in my hands, thinking, oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? And I relayed the story to Ian, the camera, and he had to sit down in fear of falling over for laughing after I relayed the story back to him. And it's my worst moment in life whenever I've met someone with some sort of profile and I swore that I would never ever ever meet my heroes again um, and I had the opportunity in Singapore to meet Kenny Dalglish and all I kept seeing in front of me was Billy Conley and I just refused to go over and speak to Kenny Dalglish my pals are like go and talk to him go and say hello he, I'm sure he would like to say hello to you I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't. I just see Billy Connolly. I just see Billy Connolly. I'll forget people's names. I can't do it. I'll make a fool of myself. <laughs> so I've always sworn never ever to meet my heroes. Um, you know, but thankfully with, you know, with the Aberdeen players, I, I didn't fall into that trap. Thank God. Jesus, oh, I still have nightmares about that. <laughs> I'm hoping that this doesn't bring back other memories. Did you ever get the hairdryer from Sir Alex? Oh, but I did see the hairdryer from Sir Alex once. Oh, my God. And honestly, I, I, I'm not going to go into any details because it's not my place to. Um, but I did see it once, and it was um, it's as frightening as you can imagine. <laughs> it really was. And I just sat back and kind of put my head to one side and, oh, dear. 
that was um, I'm glad I'm never I was never on the end of of one of those because that was frightening. It really was totally justified. But oh my god, Th yeah, thank God. Do you have a favourite goal from supporting Aberdeen over the years that you replay in your head multiple times? Oh, John John Hewitt's winner against Real Madrid every day. <laughs> <laughs> It's the first thing I think about when I wake up and the last thing I think about when I go to sleep. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And in terms of Aberdeen as a club, who is the one player who is not an obvious player? Maybe you could, I could, I'm asking you really here, who would you say is the most underrated player that you were a massive fan of over the years, but maybe the, in the grand scheme of things wasn't totally appreciated by everyone else? There's a couple, if you don't mind, I'll give you a oh, couple. Absolutely. Yeah, the first one was Billy Stark. Um, I don't think Billy was appreciated as much as he is now when he played for Aberdeen. Um, you know, he, he came in to fill big boots, you know, Gordon Strachan left, he came in. And I thought, I thought Billy was a fantastic player for us. Um, you know, you just have to talk to his former teammates. And when you talk to them, they, they have nothing but fantastic words about Billy. Every single one of them talks of him in the highest regard, not just as a person, but as a, as a football player as well. So Billy Stark, 100%. And in the modern game, Andrew Considine. Um, I think the fact that he has stayed with Aberdeen his entire career just tells you everything you need to know. And I think he's getting better as he gets older. Um, he's an absolute rock for Aberdeen. He's... he's a guy that holds the team together. I know for a fact he's loved by all his teammates, held in the highest regard, um, is hugely popular in the dressing room and, and with the youngsters coming through as well. Um, he does a great deal for that football club. And uh, I just think um, he, he deserves way more plaudits than what he gets. And the last question I've got for you, and I have to say, Ali, thank you for being so generous with your time. The last question Pleasure. I've got for you, what advice would you give to any young creative? Because throughout your life and career, it's been, it's been very clear in everything that you have achieved. It's, it's all been in the creative industries. You think of modelling, you think of music, you think of presenting, producing, um, writing. It's it, very creative-led industries. So what advice would you give to any creatives listening to this? I think first and foremost, I think it's very important that you're right up to speed with everything that's going on in football on a daily basis. You, I, I think you have to become almost learned in the, in the field. So for me, you should always read newspapers, always read them. Yeah. Um, I think people have become a little bit lazy about reading newspapers these days. I think it's vitally important because you can get so much great information from newspapers. Um, I think it's also important to keep up to speed with the latest technologies, what's going on, social media, um, you know, this TikTok thing that's going on at the moment, which has become hugely popular at the moment. I personally haven't seen it. You know, I've seen, don't get me wrong, I've seen examples of it, but because we can't get it out here in Qatar at the moment. so. Um, um, but what I have seen, it, look, it looks fantastic, looks great fun. Um, so it's very important to keep up to speed with latest technologies, new technologies, technologies that haven't been invented yet. And what I mean by that is reading books, reading articles from 
people who are industry designers. And for me, you know, I've read books from Bill Gates. I've read books from Richard Branson. I've read books from George Michael. I've read books from Sir Alex Ferguson, Roy Keane, Gary Neville. Um, and I think it's vitally important that you read as much as you can, take in as much information as you possibly can and think, really think about what can I do? How can I make it better? What are people interested in? And how do I get it to the level that I want to get it to? You know, I'm always thinking, I'm always trying to think of ideas, you know, with my blog. Where I don't want it to become stale is I don't want to keep asking them the same general questions. What was it like when you played for Aberdeen? What was it like when you scored that goal? Who were your favorite teammates? Because people get bored and they get bored very quickly. So you need to keep stimulating their brains so that they come back time and time and time again. So when I'm writing my questions in preparation for the, for the, the blog, I'm always thinking of different questions, different angles. It's like, you know, I'm trying to get Sir Alex Ferguson. He's my number one aim at the moment. But how do I get him? Um, the only way to get him is to be able to dangle a carrot in front of his face by offering something that he's not been offered before in terms of an interview. Now, how do I do that? I have to go to bed thinking about it. I have to wake up thinking about it. So it's vitally important that you always think, what do people like? What do people not like? What's popular? What's not so popular? How can I make that my own? Do you know, do you know what I mean by that? You know, you can take an idea. Don't plagiarize the idea, but make it your own. Yeah? There's nothing wrong with being inspired by other people's ideas, but don't ever plagiarize it. I'm not a big fan of that. Always make it your own. So um, that's the advice I would give. And never, ever, ever give up. Never give up on your dream. If there's something that you desperately want and you really want it to work, make it work. Don't ever give up. Absolutely inspiring. What an end to, to this interview, Ali. As I say, thank you for your time. And please just remind us how we can follow the blog and yourself on Twitter again, please. So I'm on Twitter. It's Ali underscore Beg. My official Facebook page is W. Sorry, my official Facebook page is Ali Beg Official, and my blog is the three W's dot Alibeg.com. Brilliant. Thank you, Ali. It's been an absolute pleasure. All the best for the future. And you. Thanks for having me on. I never told you.